0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff Kopsetta. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking
1: welcome everybody to another episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast your favorite world war ii based podcast i know we're three days late on that but hey we didn't have a show until tonight so why not celebrate a little bit with you know the invasion speech or letter i guess if you will that was written to the infantry soldiers prior to the landings and um execution of operation overlord on june 6 1944 joining us again tonight i think he's slowly taking the lead in the most recurring appearances on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. He is a, the historian, author, and all-around great guy, Jared Frederick. Jared how, Jared, how are you doing tonight, friend?
2: I am very well. Thank you for having me, and I'm uh, glad to be back on the podcast.
1: I'm glad to have you back. Um, we got some very exciting things to talk about tonight, but before we get to that, I was just uh, going over your Facebook page again, and I saw that you guys just recently had a little... Um, more tv coverage and you're very thrilled to participate along with your friends over at the furious fourth uh, world war ii living history association you guys got to do um got to do a little um d-day celebration if you will over on uh, c-span how did that go how did that come about
2: um that was actually uh from two years ago from the 75th anniversary um but it has it has re-aired a number of times on on c-span and uh, it's it's made its rounds on on social media. Um, and, you know, that was just one of those happenstance of sort of living history events where, uh, you know, you have your encampment set up and you're told by the event organizers, hey, C-SPAN's here. And they would like to talk to somebody in the group. And uh, inevitably, when that happens, um, all my buddies point to me <laughs> um, because uh, I'm, I'm one of the designated talkers <laughs> often.
1: Well, those occurrences can go one of two ways. Um, If you have a spokesperson for your group that has the media presence and the experience like you do, it goes swimmingly well. And as you said, the uh, coverage gets replayed on C-SPAN a few times and uh, it continues to um, help all those around. Or you get somebody who doesn't want to do it, but he's kind of pushed out in front of the crowd. They fumble through an interview. Um, It's embarrassing for everybody to watch. And it's never seen again except for maybe on the uh, promo reel of the local news person who's trying to get to a better market. But I'm happy to see that yours went uh, swimmingly well. Thank you. So you got some exciting news. And just for the uninitiated or the new followers to the podcast, Jared is not only a living historian. Um, he is an author. He has uh, his fifth book just came out. He has Altoon. Uh, Dispatches of D-Day, Gettysburg's National Military Parks, Entertaining History, The Civil Wars, and uh, Literature, Film, and Song. And most recently, which my copy will show up on the 10th, is Hanging Tough, the World War II letters and artifacts of major Dick Winters. How did this come to play, and how did you get access to some of these artifacts?
2: Uh, Well, it's really, the project is really rooted in my friend and co-author, Eric Dore. Uh, who is the owner and curator of the Gettysburg Museum of History in Pennsylvania. And um, quite naturally, uh, it's one's instinct to think of the American Civil War when you hear Gettysburg. Sure. Um, But Gettysburg also has a very rich World War II history as well. Uh, There is a national cemetery there that has well over 1,600 GIs buried in it, many of whom were killed in the war. Uh, many people don't know that Gettysburg is also the American sister city of San Mary Glees uh, in Normandy.
1: I wasn't aware of that either.
2: It is. Yeah. The two towns have a relationship. These pivotal battles took place in their uh, respective towns. And, and of course, it was uh, uh, the post-war home of, of Dwight Eisenhower. But a lot of people don't realize also uh, that Dick Winters lived in the Gettysburg area uh, immediately following the Second World War, as he was starting a family.
1: Yeah, we know famously he kind of made a promise to God that uh, if he were to make it through this insanity that he would find a nice, quiet piece of land and settle down. And apparently to him, Gettysburg was as quiet as it comes, and not to mention it's beautiful and the history side. I knew he went to Pennsylvania, but I didn't know it was Gettysburg that he settled down in.
2: For a short time. Um, And then eventually he he moved uh, into the, the Hershey Area and he had a home uh, in Hershey proper, and he also had a farm uh, outside of town. Uh, but uh, true to form, and as you uh, see in the mini series, uh, and as I found out as I was researching this book, uh, that he was he was writing to his parents as the war was ongoing, asking them to look for pieces of property that he might be able to settle on um, in the years after the war uh but the 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 project is is really rooted in in the the collection and the passion of of my co-author Eric Dore, and uh about 5 years ago now uh he had uh the opportunity to purchase uh various components of Dick Winters's artifacts
1: did he have uh, and... a close family connection or tie or was it just through common uh, acquaintances and historical associations
2: Uh, common acquaintances uh, Eric had become friends with a number of people who were close to the major and uh, the short of the story is is that uh, Eric sought to consolidate this collection uh, and he wanted to provide a home for it in which it could be shown to the public and accessible to the public and uh, over the years since uh, his His collection has has really grown, and it's it's really, I think the the finest assortment of easy company memorabilia and and artifacts to be found in the United States, perhaps even the world. Um, and you know he he has not only winners items, um, but you know he has things belonging to uh, force, Guth. wow, uh, you know and some of the, the best known members of of that very vaunted unit. Um, and so uh, in many ways, uh, Dick Winters is, is just the, the tip of the iceberg.
1: When it came to uh, organizing, laying out the book and uh, cataloging some of those collections or some of these letters, was there is there a particular item or maybe a, a factoid, if you will, from one of the letters that uh, came across that, uh, you know, you're surprised by, super unfamiliar with, things like that?
2: Constantly, I was constantly surprised by things that we were finding, and I think one of the the real merits of the book is that it shows how winners evolved as an individual and as a leader. Uh, the letters start in 1941. He was in in the peacetime army, and he opted to, you know, get his year of, you know, service done rather than be drafted. He wanted to get his one year of service done and over with, and he didn't want his life to be interrupted later on if he were to be conscripted. Um, And so he he starts then, and, you know, he he starts out as this very um, positive thinking and very driven, self-assured young man. And His confidence never really wavered, uh, as best as I could tell. Uh, But over time, as the war goes on, he did become more cynical. And his letters often grew darker. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a more pessimistic view of the world and sometimes the army.
1: I could see that. I mean, as time goes by and seeing the things and experiencing the things that he's seen, not only that, but to deal with the loss of not only men that you're in charge of, but as we all know, famously easy company being one of the very first um, organization of men to not only fight together, but to train together, go through all that and then fight together. I'm I'm not saying it's takes anything less away from a leader who loses men that they don't have that experience with. But let's be honest to go from a group of guys that you were in boot camp with that you, Slowly earned your way into a leadership role, and then lose the guys that you spent the last three years with. If you don't compartmentalize and be a little cynical about it, it'll be completely devastating, and it would be next yeah. impossible to do your mission in the way in which is required of someone in that position in that caliber of war.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And he he writes about factors such as this, where. You know he he really underscores the importance of officers staying arm's length from their subordinates, um, and and he essentially make the makes the argument to his pen pal that you know I I can't get too attached to them because I may have to send them off to die, and I and he he could not. In his mind, he could not fully emotionally process doing something like that. But uh, inevitably, he did grow attached and accustomed to these men. And when they did perish, um, he he lost a little bit of his soul in the process. Um, But he, he tried. He tried to keep that arm's length, but he did not always succeed.
1: So you're you saying his confidence never waned. So in your research and in your mind, you know, he kind of was born leader. I mean, the to join up early, like you said, because he didn't want to risk, you know, getting drafted and then not having a choice, as we heard a lot of the good and then not having a choice, as we heard a lot of the guys who signed up for Airborne, they wanted to be around the best because they, they wanted the guy fighting in the foxhole with him the, the the men fighting along with him to be the best to increase and prove their su- survival rating but um it seems like he was just kind of a natural born leader and just fell into the role quite well early on
2: and that was really instilled in him at a very young age his his mother came from old mennonite stock in in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and he learned how to be Self-dependent. Uh, he learned how to be a hard worker. Uh, he was a, a very intellectually driven individual.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, not many people in 1941 had a college education. Uh, that didn't come about till after the war. Uh, but he graduated from college from Franklin and Marshall College in in 1941, and you know he had, you know, all of these internal mechanisms that allowed him to process and working his way up the officer chain. Um, The other really interesting thing about him, though, that emerges in these letters uh, is the fact that he thought himself to be a very shy individual um, you know, he he likened himself to a still wallflower. You know, he was always the kid who was sitting in the back of the classroom who never raised his hand. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, this this tough as nails individual. You know, you don't you don't think of such individuals like that being shy or reserved. Uh, but I think it it went back to kind of that that meekness, uh, that that humility. Uh, that was tied in with his ancestry and his upbringing in rural Pennsylvania that made him that way.
1: Real quick, uh, for those of you watching on uh, YouTube and on Facebook, our co-host Jeff Copsetta just snuck into the interview. Hey, Jeff, how you doing, sir?
3: Hey, hey man, I, I guess I didn't get the memo for what time we were rolling tonight. <laughs>
1: No no worries. Um, we're here with uh, Jared Frederick. We we're talking about the, his new book that he partnered up with on. It's the book Hang Tough, the World War II letters and artifacts of Major Dick Winters. And we were just talking about um, how Dick Winters kind of you know, uh, grew into being a natural-born leader. And Jared was referring to his Mennonite background, which makes complete sense. And for those of you at home who aren't quite sure the difference between a Mennonite and and a, someone from the Amish community, basically Mennonites believe in electricity and modern technology and they utilize it. But once again, we're talking modern technology on 1935, 1940 scale. And so for someone, you know, uh, easily his religion had a, a, a great impact because one, as, as Jared was saying, and but. Growing up in basically in a community that relies on manual labor and community and honor and fulfilling your obligation and pulling your weight to grow up in that environment where your you know responsibility and commitment is entrusted in, in, in you early that had to have tremendous impact and help him gain to the level that he did quicker than you know people even in even compared to contemporaries in, that echelon of airborne you know growing up were in that work environment compared to you know a babe hephron or someone who still was elite but from the city who didn't have that same background i'm sure that religion and just that childhood had tremendous effect on how he was able to strive and succeed as well as he did and yeah, uh, yeah go
2: ahead
3: Jared, sorry, sorry about that to hop happened I'm, I'm sorry i missed some of this, no some worries. Of this tonight uh, but if I could just hop in real quick, uh, I, you know, we talk about that a lot. And Jared, you may you may agree, whether the the religious background or or where you're from, like you mentioned, you know, rural Pennsylvania, you know, everything kind of shapes who we are and who, who you become as a, as a leader in the military, or leader in the civilian world. Um, but I truly believe, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, that that's what made the Greenwich generation so great was because that what they had to endure during the war they were able to do it or most of them were able to do it because of their childhood because of the amount of responsibility because of what it took to survive in the late 20s and 30s great those depression. responsibilities right right the great depression all those things that just it, it kind of was like they were well, I mean, I guess they said it best They they had a, a rendezvous with destiny, and I think a lot of it came from their childhood, their upbringing, what they had to do, which was day-to-day stuff. So when they get over there and they hit the beach, that kind of stuff was commonplace. What, what do you think?
2: Yeah, definitely so. Um, and a, a phrase comes to mind uh, that the, the late, great Louis Zamperini uh, co- coined. Um, And he was never really a a huge fan of the phrase, the greatest generation. The phrase that he preferred was the hardiest generation. Um, Absolutely. I think that is uh, just a a perfect uh, quotation um, that that sums it up. And, uh, you know, to your point, Jeff, um, I think many people fit under that category. Um, These guys grew up poor. Uh, but as so many of them have told me, they didn't know they were poor <laughs> in the 1930s because everybody else was living the same existence that they were. Um, and so uh, w- without television and social media, they they didn't have that sort of uh, context or alternative worldview. Um, th- but as for Winters, I-, I think that was definitely the case to an extent. Uh, he and his family were a little bit better off than most in the Depression. His father worked for Edison Electric and that's where Dick got one of his first jobs and that was actually climbing up high and painting utility poles. Um, And as he often said or or joked later on uh, that's kind of where he became familiar with heights Um, and and perhaps uh, you know uh, that's where he was able to overcome his fear of heights uh, leading into his uh, entry into the paratroops later on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's spot
1: on. And kind of to what to add on the to, to what Jeff said, I just did a quick search and I found the census for the 1930s, um, actually 1920s. And so we can extrapolate a little bit going into late 1937s. But in 1920, according to the census, 30.2% of the United States population were farmers. And I think that had a great deal to do, not only with airborne, but just regular service personnel across the board. When you have a group of people, 30% of them working at farm lifestyle where you're getting up at five in the morning and you're working until the sun goes down, when you've been doing that for 17, 18 years, you know, humping through the field all day, carrying heavy gear. Not counting, you know, dealing with death and, and getting shot at, but just the physical requirements of that was probably I don't want to say easier, but more more uh, they they're more adept Go to ahead, it the, back then than our population would be now. With probably our mm-hmm. population being like zero point five percent farmers, and so yeah. that upbringing and that hardiness that Jeff was referring to definitely had a huge um, impact on how. Hardy that stock was, and how they're able to survive living in those conditions for so long.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's funny you mentioned the hardiest generation because I've had the same thing from I don't know how many. I've never heard, I've never spoke to a World War II vet that considered himself part of the greatest generation. Uh, I've had a few of them say, The greatest generation were my parents. Mm-hmm. And you really think about how the parents of what we call the greatest generation what they had to go through, you know, maybe even more so than the youngsters who became our greatest generation, you know, that turn of the century and even into the late 1800s, how much tougher life was um, before things like electricity and, uh, you know, combustion <laughs> engines. Um, so I find that that fascinating. Um mm-hmm. You know the greatest generation's parents. So who, who thinks about them so much?
2: You know. Yeah, and and I suspect Dick Winters himself may have agreed with you to a, a large extent because uh, in his letters um, he he wrote fairly often um, about his mother. He was incredibly close uh, with his mother. He he thanked her for a, a lot of the the smarts and sensibilities that that he had in his life, um, and so I, I have no doubt that that he would probably have shared those sentiments.
1: You know, going real quick back to the, the phrase the greatest generation, one of the things that it still sticks in the back of my head when uh, I hear that term, obviously my father's parents were part of that generation. And the very first time I read, it was either, it was either the band of brothers or one of the, um, maybe we are alive. One of the, the following books I'm looking right now, um, the Brothers in Battle, The Best of uh, Friends, or one of the other following books. But they were talking, I don't think it was Shifty Powers, it was another one, that um, he made it back home, got back to port, and he was hitchhiking his way back home. And as he was hitchhiking, the driver said, hey, I, I got to urinate. And they pulled off on the side of the road, the country road. And I uh, I, I hate the fact that it's, he's the, the member of Easy Company slips in my mind. But anyhow, he gets out to urinate as well. And the guy driving the car robs him, pulls a gun in the back, takes all his money, all his back pay, all his bring home stuff, basically just stole his old duffel bag. And I was explaining to my dad that this guy just survived, you know, all the years in boot camp, all these years in the war, seeing his friends die just to get robbed at gunpoint in the back on the side of the country road. My dad said, so much for the greatest generation, huh? And that always sticks in my head that yes, even with the greatest generation, there was a Percentage of them that were just dirtbags looking to take advantage of people at any, any, uh, any shake. But, uh, um, generation is perfect. Exactly. So, um, you were referring earlier to Dick Winters, um, writing to his pen pal. Was there one particular person that he wrote to frequently, um, that we know of by name and that, Indeed. um, and who was this person?
2: Indeed. Her name was Dietta Alman. And she was a Navy wave. And uh, she is an individual who's very important in Dick Winters' World War II years. Um, She gets no reference at all in the series, and I don't think at all in in Stephen Ambrose's book. Uh, But she was a very important figure in Dick Winters' life. And uh, they met essentially on a, a blind date when he was stationed in Camp Croft um, immediately prior to Pearl Harbor. Um, he was in Camp Croft, South Carolina. She lived in Asheville, North Carolina. They're right over the border, essentially, from one another. And uh, they, they started a written correspondence uh, before, prior to Pearl Harbor. Um, in fact, um, Dick was horseback riding with her when Pearl Harbor was bombed and they rode back into town and that's what they heard on, on the radio. And over the next four years, uh, she, and he wrote her over a hundred letters and those are the basis for the narrative in our book. Uh, and what we do is that Eric and I, my co-author, we we, we present the letters in uh, an unfiltered way, and then we stitch them together with our context commentary and observations um, to offer a, a cohesive timeline uh, for the readers throughout. And, you know, it's, it, it's really compelling stuff um, because, you know, when you Read Band of Brothers, you watch the series. What you see in that is how Dick Winters' men saw him. It's not how Dick Winters saw himself. And through these letters, we see how Dick Winters was thinking in the moment. And that's a really valuable thing as far as historical documentation goes, because you know, a lot of these guys in Easy Company, of course, you know, they wrote memoirs. 55, 65 years after the fact. Uh, the fog of war has settled in a little bit. Um, and, and that's certainly not, not the case with these letters. They, they have a sense of immediacy to them. They are written in the moment. They are not written with hindsight. Victory was not a foregone conclusion as Dick was writing these letters. Um, and, and so it, it's, it offers a very in the moment perspective that I think is just really refreshing.
1: Well, it's funny that you just used the word refreshing. Cause I was sitting here waiting to follow it up. And the word that I had in my mind was fr- refreshing as in it's got to be refreshing, not only for you as an author, but I mean, let's face it out of everybody I know in the living history community, you do more <laughs> research and spend more time thumbing through materials than anybody I know. But for the reader's aspect, I mean, there, as you said, there's so many books written, on the topic of the band of brothers and we're always kind of rereading the same stories depending on whose book it is. But now you're getting a refreshing aspect that we haven't seen before of Dick Winters, not only in his own words, but through the uh, transcripts of writing back and forth with his pen pal. And the other thing I I was thinking about when you're talking about the fact that she was a member of waves, you know, in a lot of movies, And stories, you know, they they write back to their sweetheart who maybe is working in a factory or doing something on the home front. But I think there's probably something important or even maybe an, an aspect of having someone that you're writing to who's in the member of the service at the time, even though it's not the exact same service that he's doing. But there's probably something about that that allows him to open up a little bit more than maybe if you're writing to someone who's getting up and going to a factory every day or going into a school and teaching every day because that person understands some of the minutia of the hierarchy of the military and the daily life of being in service. And so that's something that he could probably relate without actually having to write it because she knows what he's going through as far as the – of being in the service and so that that had to be helpful too you would think
2: absolutely um and i, I think your point of of him relating to someone else in the military is an important one um uh, all that said though um he certainly did not see the waves as being on the same level oh, as oh sure the airborne. Um, and he uh at, at times he was comedically dismissive <laughs> oh really the waves. and uh and he, in short um, and and he, he was very clear about this in, in his letters. Um, he did not think too too much of um, service members if they were not paratroopers or if they were not Marines. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, 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 there's some really funny lines that he says about like the service of supply guys and you know, like <laughs> these hash slingers. And he's like, they don't know what this is all about. Like they're just wearing uniforms. Like they aren't real soldiers. Um, you know, just some kind of funny, um, off the wall humor, um, like that.
1: Well, I'm sure Jeff um, can, can relate to some of that. Cause he is in fact a retired, uh, military personnel and, uh, he, he probably, I, I would imagine that, uh, when you're on the front lines and, and as they say, when that supply gets to you, a lot of it's already been picked through. I'm sure that creates a whole sense of, uh, thought about the guys in the rear of the gear, huh, Jeff?
3: Yeah. No surprise what what Jared said. I mean, when you become, so I was an army recon and, you know, you feel like you're just a little bit better than everybody else. You've got that chip on your shoulder. Uh, and, and I remember having a real, you know, downward outlook on the rest of them, just those regular Joes in the army and especially the national guard and reserves. But I will tell you, I think a difference I share or, or, Something I don't share with with uh, Dick Winters is I did see my outlook completely change about halfway through my tour when I saw the Arkansas National Guard boys that were attached to my brigade completely getting blooded every single day. Mm. I didn't look at them as National Guard pukes anymore. They were doing the same job as me. They had the same mission, except they had poor equipment, you know, less armor or no armor, less you know, crappier vehicles. And I, I would sneak over to their chow hall every now and then and hang out with these guys. And they're talking about how their wife had to foreclose on their house because oh, the job that they were guaranteed to get back to had already let go of them. So I don't want to get too far off topic, but no surprise at all that thick winners would be there. I, I had a feeling he would probably like, yeah, no. wait,
2: you know what I'm talking
3: about, <laughs> right? Yeah, no.
2: <laughs> his um his perspective's definitely mellowed with age, and I, I think sure. um, as as, as the totality of the war and its history kind of sunk in his mind um, that, that he probably, I think he undoubtedly took the, the, the same attitude that, that you just addressed. Sure. Um, but, you know, in his letters um, to Dieta, um, she really in many ways served as this emotional ballast. As he was going through all this stuff and in essence you know he told her he says you know i i can tell you things and i can write things to you that i can't write to my mother um and and you know from a psychological perspective it's so important to have somebody like that when you're going through difficult times um you know a number of my students are veterans uh, a number of my former students are are still in the military, and you know a number of them have have called me. You know when 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 times are tough, and you know they've they've told me you know I, I can't tell my mother this. Um, so you know having having somebody to listen to, and in this case to to write back um, is you know we, we, we shouldn't you know uh, overlook that uh, too much. But you know it's it's just such a fascinating dynamic. And it's, uh, it's a a whole other side of of Dick Winters that I think most people haven't taken into consideration.
1: Yeah. I'm very, I'm, I'm extremely excited and looking forward for June 10th, roll around when Amazon's going to deliver that bad boy into my mailbox and I'm going to promptly read it. I was just having this thought when you're, when we're talking about writing letters and how it's so beneficial to, I don't want to say Offload that, but I I I just had this weird premonition, and I may even be wrong on this. And so we're we're going to leave World War II briefly. In the movie Platoon, part of the narration, Charlie Sheen's talking to his grandmother about the letters he's writing. Correct, kind of doing that same thing where he's getting what he's experiencing out of his mind, uh, you know, out so he's not he's not carrying it for some reason. And I may be wrong about this, which makes, and if I am wrong, it's going to blow this whole theory out, but. What's crazy about in that movie and him constantly narrating these letters to his grandma, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the end of the movie, we find out that she she doesn't exist or he didn't have a grandma. And basically he was just doing that in his head to offload these feelings and this compassion that he was having, wanting to get all this stuff off of his mind so he's not carrying that burden. Was I wrong on that? I'm not sure. (laughs) But I...
2: I, i'm
3: for, not aware of that for some reason i, mean,
1: I, he, I could be he references
3: wrong. his mom to his grandma
1: yeah but i just thought there and was I, a point but anyhow even still just like uh, in that movie in, in vietnam he's just getting it out there and so yeah it's got to be tremendous help to be able to offload that and you know to someone who can deal with it and you know not completely destroy him like it would your mom because your mom's already worried about you coming back Coming back, I want peace, but then to have to be burdened with the psychological stuff that you're going through just would make it that much harder for them to deal with and to cope on a daily basis, especially considering back then we don't have the benefits of a a Zoom, uh, instant message, and email. You're writing a letter and waiting weeks, if not months, to hear back, even with the streamlined email system we have, which still blows my mind. and That just goes to show you back how important morale was back then, that we would take an X amount of planes, ships, whatever, and set aside X amount of space for nothing but letters to get it over there as quick as possible to help keep the guys going. But even still, it's still weeks, if not months to get those letters out to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, something interesting about the timing in that regard, um, in, in relation to, uh, Dick's letters, it's often very revealing when there's gaps in his correspondence. Uh, you know there's there's a gaff uh, a gap uh between mid december and the beginning of february 1944 1945 and you know that that certainly indicates that during the battle of the bulge he did not have time to be writing letters as such um but you know luckily uh, winters um Something else that that people don't take into consideration is what an incredible historian he was, Mm -hmm. because he was so thorough in his documentation and records, uh, both during and after the war. This was a veteran who had a file on every one of his men, as many as, as he could make possible. And he had file cabinets in his home office in Hershey. And he would write to these men, and he would photocopy their responses, and he would collect their photographs. And this is ultimately why this, this, this treasure trove of firsthand accounts and connections that Winters had is how and why Stephen Ambrose chooses to write a book on these guys is because all the information mm-hmm. and all the testimony was consolidated thanks to Dick Winters. If it was not for Dick Winters, that would have been an impossible book to write, oh. Hunting all those guys down, finding their addresses in the days before the Internet. And um, that and but the fact Winters
1: that – Winters had it all. Yeah, I was gonna say that, and the fact that they consistently had their anniversaries—that there was something to go to to track them down as well, too. mm -hmm. And so, is that how? Is that some of the material which your co-author Eric got a hold of? Is some of those files and um, some of that content? Mm
2: Hmm. Yes. Um, He has a huge uh, assortment of, of of winners' files as well as. Uh, documents of of other easy company men as well um, uh, ranging from photographs unit albums uh correspondence um the works and uh, that was uh, that was really one of the things that that drew me into the project um is because you know don like like you referenced a moment ago you know i was of the mind what could possibly be new mm-hmm. and interesting to write about the band of brothers. Yeah. I never envisioned myself, um, becoming one of those authors, you know, um, I, I don't, you know, it, it, I thought it was, you know, heavily tread territory.
1: Well, I mean, you're a living historian and you, you, you've heard the phrase bandwagon of brothers around a handful of <laughs> yeah, time. I didn't want
2: to say it. I'm, I, I was going to let you do it. Um, <laughs> But once once I saw a lot of these the, these documents and letters and copies of letters, um, you know, I was just in the mind, how can I not do this? Like I just thought this is incredible stuff. Um and it, it's it's you know been hidden, you know, uh, for the most part for for all these years. And so it was it was just an incredible opportunity. And I I wanted to I wanted to flesh out the story, you know, and in the beginning of our book, you know, I I liken Dick Winters to the Civil War General Joshua Chamberlain, Uh, you know, not until these men were considerably older for the most part did the world find out who they were and the world did find out who they were is because they were the main characters Mm -hmm. in highly successful books that were then turned into highly successful Hollywood productions
1: that continue Gettysburg to get played brothers
2: mm-hmm. respectively and i i think in so many ways those two officers who were in the thick of combat had the peace of mind to write about their experiences uh, they have become symbolic of their respective generations for both the civil war and the second world war um even if a lot of people don't know about those conflicts, there's a strong possibility they've at least heard of those two guys mm-hmm. because of how they've been portrayed in movies um,
0: and,
1: s- and whatnot. And someone who most recently, within the last eight years, fell into that camp was someone who actively went against policy and down in the Pacific of, you are not to write any letters about troop movements, where we've been, because if you get killed and someone loot your body that intel is going and that would be eugene sledge because he took the liberty to write what we would call you know um just little reminders throughout his diary i'm um, not his diary but his bible that once he got home he was able to write the book that he did yeah. with the old breed and luckily uh same thing with Letkey, obviously he didn't write anything down he was already a journalist and an author and had a steel trap memory anyhow and the, both those guys use that as a way to find closure. Obviously, Lecky went on yeah. to write multiple books, but um, the question I had for you and Jeff, I'll shut up here in a second, and you can ask a few questions. Did did Dick Winters carry on that habit or the desire to for journal writing into his older years? Did, did you guys come across any paperwork maybe where he made di- diary entries about? how he was dealing with this newfound fame of being in Hollywood, or did that kind of go the wayside as technology increased?
2: Yeah. Uh, some of his later correspondence in the, the 1990s and the two thousands, uh, certainly hint at those pressures of celebrity, uh, that, that were, that were placed on him in his final years. Uh and you know he in, in the final years of his life, you know he had to un- unlist his address in the phone book. He got a post office box, um, and the the requests for for autographs, you know, fan mail and whatnot, um, it, it became so overwhelming uh, that eventually he had to quit responding to all of them because, you know, being the the gentleman that he was early on, you know, he always tried to write back to people. Um, but in those last few years, it just became so overwhelming that, that he couldn't keep up. Um, and so, and, you know, and, you know, there are other bits of correspondence uh, later on as well, you know, with the likes of Ronald Spears, uh, who wanted to have nothing to do with Band of Brothers for the most part. Uh, welcomed his privacy, uh, cherished his privacy, is a better way to put it. Um, and, you know, wanted to keep to himself. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's so revealing because in, in the early 90s, with the release of the book Band of Brothers, uh, winners really tried to reconnect with spears and bring him back in the fold because uh spears went to one reunion i believe it was in 1947 and then no one in easy company ever saw him again until 2001 wow when they had that that rather iconic reunion at utah beach when they showed portions of of the miniseries so um On and off, Winters and Spears uh, stayed in touch, Uh, but they went, uh, you know, essentially 60 years uh, without seeing each other, and they reunited on on Utah Beach in June of 2001. Um, And so there's a lot of rabbit holes we could go down in regard to how all of these guys coped with their sudden celebrity in their final years. And uh, that story and that relationship between Spears and Winters is just one of
1: them. You got any follow-up questions for him, Jeff?
3: Uh, yeah, I got, I guess two questions. And, and one you may have already answered and I missed, but back to, back to the of the wave, uh, you know, when you mentioned kind of using her as, as almost a, a, a release of things you can't tell your mom, I'm assuming because of that, he was, there was no romantic connection between the two.
2: Um, That is um, something that I'm a a bit uncertain about uh, because, you know, there, there is obvious affection in the letters, but, you know, later on Winters insisted that their relationship was entirely platonic. um, That there, there was no, um, kind of lustful attachment or anything like that. I, I think the best way to describe it is that he almost saw her like a sister figure. Um, a, a loved one, someone who was very close, um, but was uh, more along the lines of a, of a very good friend that he could confide in and could serve as a sounding board. Uh, Dieta herself may have had <laughs> other intentions um, in the long run. Um, But one of the the really kind of sad elements of some of the the letters from later in the war is you really get the sense that Winters didn't want to form any more emotional attachments with anybody because he didn't think he was going to make it. Um, And if he did once have some sort of romantic sentiment toward her, I think he severed that because he did not want her to be hurt if he was not to make it.
3: Yeah, I, I just, I get the sense, I, you know, that if it's the girl you love, you're not going to tell her what he probably told her. You know, he's going to want to protect her uh, like the mother figure, <laughs> you know. you're. But that was just, that's why that kind of became my assumption. It was maybe more like, hey, look what I did. You should be proud of your boy uh but if he's really going into some detail as like you said more of a release then you're probably exactly right who knows what what her thoughts were
2: yeah
3: uh, um but yeah i don't think you probably tell the girl you love probably as much as he told her and that's just my assumption from yeah. i haven't seen these letters of course but um so um uh, my other question and and I, i'm <sighs> I'm hesitant to, to, I'm trying to word it properly because I don't want to take anything away from, from, from winners, of course, but I guess maybe I just assumed um, the amount of record keeping that he had was, is that, I don't know. I, I guess I think back to my time in the military, that that's what you expect from your company commanders in any situation. I mean, if you're in the bottom of a foxhole or, you know, back at back at the talk in the AC playing halo your company commanders taking care of stuff and uh, so I find it interesting I, I'm kind of I'm curious because I can tell you that uh, the XO of my unit um, kept over a terabyte worth of information mm-hmm. on what we did in Iraq and that's not our company that was our executive officer and and I know he went on to do much bigger and better and greater things uh you know he was a a west pointer and just an unbelievable officer so i I expected that from him so i'm just kind of curious as to is it is that kind of a uniqueness to winners in, in those circumstances because we know they weren't very easy circumstances to be be keeping up with the files that he had to have kept up with um is that does it lend more to his memory with the stuff that he put together afterwards especially when you mentioned the bulge um, trying to go back in time and remember some of these things so I'm kind of curious how many other you know commanders were in his position and some of these really hard fights that went on for months um, what came out of it what what did those company commanders uh, keep track of what was actually documented that should have been um and maybe lost to time maybe it was just lost to history lost to weather whatever it was so i'm curious like maybe it's not really a question but i don't know if that's a uniqueness to winners but more maybe a, a little bit of dumb luck that it survived and probably yeah. credit to him yeah. not only to be an officer and a commander like that but to actually have it to where it's sustainable information for people like you
1: now, yeah. hold on real quick, Jared. There's a lot to unpack there. I've got to do some traffic comp in here. We're getting a two-minute countdown from Zoom because we're on Zoom free. So if you have a little bit of time, I'm going to kill this meeting, and we'll restart it, and we'll do maybe another 20 minutes if you have the time. Sure. Okay, you guys watching on YouTube and um, over on Facebook, I do apologize. Hold tight. We'll be back momentarily. It's one of the most celebrated feats of World War II. On June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 troops stormed the beaches of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. Less known is that an unlikely snack helped power the Allies before, during, and after the historic mission. In 1937, the United States Army approached a food titan about creating a specially designed snack for its emergency rations. According to the food titan's chief chemist, Sam Hinkle, the United States government had just four simple requests about their new emergency snack. They had to weigh less than four ounces, be high in energy, withstand high temperature, and taste a little bit better than a boiled potato. The Army didn't want the snack to be so tasty that its soldiers would eat it in a non-emergency situation. The final product was called d ration bars, a blend of chocolate, sugar, cocoa butter, skim milk powder, and oat flour. The viscous mixture provided too thick to move through the normal manufacturing setup at the plant, so initially each bar had to be packed into its 4-ounce mold by hand. As for taste, most who tried it said they would rather have eaten the boiled potato. The combination of fat and oat flour made the bar a dense brick, and the sugar did little to mask the overwhelmingly bitter taste. And since it was designed to withstand high temperature, the bar was nearly impossible to bite into, so most soldiers who ate it had to slice off slivers with their knife before chewing it. Despite the U.S. Army's best efforts to stop men from doing so, some of the D ration bars ended up in the trash. Later on in the war, the food titan introduced a new version, known as the Tropical Bar, specifically designed for the extreme temperatures of the Pacific Theater. By the end of the war, the company had produced more than 3 billion ration bars. The bar was hardly the only sweet in D-Day rations. Sugar was an easy way to pep up troops, and the quick burst of energy it provided made a welcome addition to kit bags. Along with the D-Rations, troops received three days' worth of K-Rations. These were designed more as meal replacements and not sustenance snacks like D-Rations, and came complete with coffee canned meats, processed cheese, and tons of sugar. At various points throughout the war, men could find powdered orange or lemon drinks, caramel, chewing gum, and, of course, more chocolate. The d ration bars, produced by the food titan known by the name of the Hershey's Chocolate Company, wasn't the only contribution to the war effort made by Hershey. Hershey also produced parts for the naval anti-aircraft guns. And Hershey wasn't the only food titan of the era to join the nationwide effort to support American troops, Heinz created a self-heating can that could be lit with cigarettes, and Kellogg supplied decay rations for the soldiers' breakfast. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you all for hanging out for the uh, part two of the What's the Scuddle Up podcast with our co-host, Jeff Copsetta, and our friend, Jared, who has um, returned. Uh, Jeff wasn't here for the beginning. He actually, Jared here, has probably taken the um, title for the most returned guest. He's been on the podcast, I think it's your third or fourth time. But uh, for those who didn't join us for the first half, Jared's new book, along with his co-author Eric Dore, is Hang Tough, The World War II Letters and Artifacts of Major Dick Winters. And Jeff asked him a question. Um, We all remember in the series Band of Brothers, after I think it was the Dyke episode, when Dick Winters is writing up the after-action report, and um, his friend came in and said, Dick, you're not writing a novel. Just put the dates, the time, the important stuff but as we were talking about Dick Winters didn't do that he filled in as much information that he could and because of his after action reports and his letters home and all his thorough documentation that's how we got to know Easy Company and the Band of Brothers as well as we did
2: yeah and and to Jeff's question i i think it's a very fair one um you know there were thousands upon thousands of company commanders and battalion commanders who were uh, indeed writing novels, quote unquote, in the the thickness of their reports and whatnot. But I think what makes uh, Winters unique in the long run is that he added additional layers to those official reports and documents over time. You know, for a a lot of officers, when, when they got home, they put the war behind them their after-action reports were put in the National Archives, and the vast majority of those have been unread uh, by the masses ever since. Um, But Winters kept in touch with his guys, and he added this very rich human perspective on top of those uh, official records, where he repetitively collected the reminiscences of the men who went through the same actions that he did. Um, And of course, the the strength of band of brothers is, is not, you know, in talking about the the tactics or, you know, uh, anything like that, but it's, it's a story of people and it's a story of camaraderie. And that's what Dick Winters truly excelled at collecting and recording. That's I think that's the best way I can answer that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, we're so lucky. Uh, We, of course, this generation to have somebody from his generation to record what he did and you know, that a lot of times I have found in, in my uh, short experiences in, in the military and the civilian world that uh, maybe not the best leader gets promoted. It's usually the best administrator. Um, that's a lesson I think all of us have probably learned <laughs> over time. And I'm definitely not one of those administrators, I'll be the first to admit. But it's been interesting for me to see. And, and meet. you know, I've met uh, a... a a lot of really incredible veterans, not just from the Second World War, but from previous wars and uh, the current war, you know, I, and I've had the opportunity to work with some very incredible people. Um, and I, and, I, and that's one thing that they had in common was that they were just darn good administrators. Um, so we're lucky to have people like that, like Winters and like uh, Don mentioned, you know, people like Sledge. Uh, Sledge was just a great administrator. He, he, you know, if, if he didn't think about, if he didn't write that stuff down in that Bible, or if that Bible came up, destroyed, missing or stolen, <laughs> yeah. it'd be lost forever. Probably. We we, we don't know. Uh, yeah. but you're lucky maybe he had the, that type of journalistic aspect where he, he was probably kind of registering and, and cataloging things mentally, uh, to prepare for later on. Um, so uh, yeah, we're lucky. We're lucky that men like winners did what he did. And, and I'll be honest, my office in, in both of my places that I've been working have his ten uh, top 10 uh, leadership qualities uh, You know, laminated, hanging behind my desk. Naturally, number 10 was heck tough. But the one that strikes me the most, I don't remember what number it was, but it was not worry about who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. You just do your job i don't know anybody that's really good at that one (laughs) everybody likes a pat on the back um but that is probably to me i think that stands out as one of the best qualities in leadership you just do your job and and whether he you know he became famous like he did but even if he didn't i think to him it probably wouldn't have mattered one way or the other
2: yeah no i i would agree with that um the most important thing to him were his men and that that bond that they shared to the very end. And of course, we only have two veterans of Easy Company left right now as we speak. Um, but he he cherished that more than anything. And th- this correspondence allowed him to to keep that alive. Um, you know, the, World War Two, for all of the, the pain that it put him through at moments, you know, it, was, it was the pinnacle of his life. And he realized from an early point on that nothing else that he was going to do in his life was going to be as important as what he did in 1944 and 1945. Um, and so to to reach your peak when you're only, you know, like 25 years of age, um, you know, I, I think that uh, certainly alludes to why so many of these men wanted to stay connected too.
3: Absolutely. That reminds me of two letters that I wrote from overseas. One began with... It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And another was, I feel like the president of the United States, the day after he's no longer president, he'll never top it. No matter what you do, the rest of your life, you'll never top it. Yeah. Uh. You know it's yeah, absolutely. And
2: I think these are universal truths that are applicable to any time period. You know, and I'm sure Civil War soldiers and Continental soldiers felt the same way. I I think it's, uh, you know, a universal uh, emotional trait of uh, people who have experienced combat together.
1: Jared, on one of your past appearances on the show, we talked about how you guys over at the Furious Fourth Living History Association, how you guys spend time researching and digging through archives to better and to create a better impression and better display for when educating the public. And obviously you have spent a lot of time researching a lot of different things in the archives, obviously with your different books, you have the Altoona, the Gettysburg national military park and uh, dispatches of D day. Um, When it came to putting together this book, was there a moment where you had to say, okay, this is crazy. I'm seeing handwriting, not only of Dick. You know, it's one thing to go through the National Archives and just read text and writing from people you really know nothing about. But here you are looking at not only Dick Winters, but maybe Spears' handwriting. You're seeing conversations back and forth between people that you've already read books on, you've known, you've seen on TV, you maybe have met one or two of them in events somewhere. It's almost like reading the transcripts or the lyrics or the music sheets of your favorite bands was there a part of you that said okay stop fanboying out we got a job to do here or did that aspect make it more um desirable or like i can't wait to get up and do this again tomorrow did it take away some of the monotony of digging through the paperwork with that being the case with
2: with each letter came uh, i think fresh um interpretations and surprises, you know, as I was as I was going along, um, and you know I, you know, as the old saying goes, and you walk in somebody else's shoes, you know, you can see the world through a whole other lens of perspective, and certainly that was, that was the case with me as I was researching Dick Winters. I, I think as I was researching, you know, when I started off, when I thought of Dick Winters, I had the tendency to think of Damian Lewis, the <laughs> yep. actor who played him. Uh, and I I suspect that's true of a lot of historical characters who have been portrayed in film. Mm -hmm. We think of the actors who play them and their, their personification of that individual. But by the time I was done researching Dick Winters and helping to write this book, I no longer thought of Damian Lewis. I thought of Dick Winters as who he truly was. And I would say that was the greatest transition that I made as a historian As i was putting all of these puzzle pieces together um but to your earlier point i did have to pinch myself at times that i was getting to see this stuff and uh but because you know i i I first saw band of brothers when, when i was in high school you know high school friends and i would talk about it you know around the lunch table and never in a million years could like 16 year old me have envisioned that I would have been like handling, you know, some Mm -hmm. of these documents and, and putting this story to, to paper. Um, and when considering that, it was also a little bit frightening at times. Um, yeah, it'd be like a
1: Beatles fan being asked to write the, you know, the in-depth knowledge of Apple, of Apple records. Yeah, have access yeah, to all I, these music think, sheets and all the stuff that no one has seen.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great analogy um, because you know he's he, he's so he's so widely respected a figure. You know, I was afraid I was going to like find something about him that was like going to shatter my image of him or you know kind of like tear down the, the marble man or you know something like that. But luckily, nothing like like that happened. Um, um, he. He, he really was the, the sort of persona that is portrayed in the film. Um, you know, he was, he was a stalwart leader. He cared about his men. He had a strong degree of humility. That humility did not prevent him from speaking about his experiences or writing about them or wanting to promote them. And and I don't think, you know, him writing his book or being a, a cheerleader of Easy Company had anything to do with his ego, it was about his desire to make sure that his men got their due in the historical record. And of course he (laughs) achieved that by leaps and bounds. Um, And, you know, he just happened to be at the right place at the right moment. And he met the right person in the form of Steven Ambrose who, you know, shared that story with the world then.
1: Um, Just a little, maybe fishing bait to get people to go out and buy the book other than all the great things we've been talking about. But did you guys come across any photos that may have been previously unpublished? Maybe something that wasn't quite super, wow, let's put this in you know, other forms, but maybe fit perfectly with the book you guys are putting out?
2: Yeah, in fact, I would say a majority of the photos in our book have never been published before. Nice. Um, there are photos of him at camp croft photos of him in training there's a great photo i believe um i can't remember if it's at at camp croft or not i'd have to look it up but there's um, a great photo of him sunbathing (laughs) and and he's he's like doing this on on the grass in front of the barracks and you know the guy was just built like a brick house
1: yeah
2: i mean he looked like superman um and, uh, you know, Damien Lewis is a great actor. He was nowhere near, like, the muscle tone that uh, Dick Winters like, actually was. Um, and, you know, so there's there's a lot of candid photos like that. There are photos that he and Dieta shared amongst each other. Um, you know, she came to visit his family in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and there's some photos of her, like, little winter field trip uh, that she made. And so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's nothing – overly dramatic or something that offers a huge revelation, but, you know, just life as it was for these people, and uh, I, sometimes I think those can be the, the most revealing sorts of images, uh, but on top of those black and white photos um, that were from Winters' personal collection, um, we also have a really nice color template section in the middle of the book uh, that, that are contemporary photographs, modern photographs, of uh some of the real gems from Eric's collection at the Gettysburg Museum of History. So um, you know, his winners is Colt 1911. Wow. Um, you know, that, that is in the collection. Um, his helmet that he wore as a major when he was in uh the New Jersey National Guard uh during the Korean War um time period. Um his wallet that has his Lancaster address written on it, you know, knowing that he you know, he carried that with him all throughout Europe. And, you know, and his, his officer's pay was in it and his paperwork was in it and Whoa. his army identification card was in it. Um, and, and knowing that he, he carried that with him throughout all these dramatic moments, there's, there's something almost sublime about it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's often the mundane stuff that that intrigues me most. I, I'd say my favorite artifact that's shown in the book is Winters' Infantry Journal book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a a typical manual that you could have bought in any post exchange in any Army base. But what's so fascinating about it, you know, it's dog-eared. You know, you can really tell that he paged through it heavily. He made notations on the side. He wrote notes in the margins. And when other officers were going out on you know with with a weekend pass but he would often stay in the barracks and he would read this book over and over again cover to cover making notes and through those notations that he made you can see the evolution of a leader coming into being and when you page through that book and you look at the things that he underlines you can almost directly correlate those bits of text with actions that he carried out later on himself in in the combat zone and so it's little uh, revealing things like that um that can be you know quite insightful you know there's the 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 glamorous stuff like his helmet his sidearm and you know really eye-catchy stuff like that but um the little stuff can be quite compelling too well
1: i think jeff can attest to that because he's Currently, a employee of a of a museum out in Texas, and he's had history at museums, and I think he can probably attest that sometimes it is the personal effects mm-hmm. that are the most valuable because that it personalizes and it makes that person real. Yeah,
3: yeah. They often kind of uh, they're 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 your salt and pepper of the battle, um, you know, on the main course. Yeah, you, you can you can learn about a battle in hundred different books. Um, but it's the personal experiences that really it's what I'm interested in. Uh, and, and of course, as living historians, um, that's, that's what we like. We we want that dog tag or like I said, that, that ID card from the wallet, um, because that really, that tells not just a bigger story, but it tells a very finite minute story too, that you can't yeah. get in a book. Um, and so I agree, it, it's the mundane that becomes, um, more outstanding, uh, an artifact for us because it really, it, it's a, it's a one-off, it's, it's a unique yeah. thing. And, and it's fortunate for, for people like winners uh, to have something that when you, it goes from a steel pot to, oh, it's Winters, steel pot, <laughs> <It changes laughs> <Literally. things. Right. laughs> and you know, and, and, and I was go just ahead. gonna Sorry. say, I, there's so many things like that. I, I see that I, I come across you know stuff, so Obviously, I'm a huge collector, and when you come across something at a garage sale, uh, yeah, this this may be a five dollar thing, but it's a it's got a story. It's been right. somewhere. It belonged to somebody, and, and it may just be a steel pot, but it was a steel pot that somebody couldn't wait to take off of their head or it's a steel pot that, you know, it, it it was part of their life. It's part of what makes you, you. And that's why I, uh, I'm, I'm, because of my personal experiences, I can understand some of those simple things that I know from my life. I hope 50 years from now will become something like that. My notes, stuff that I had in my cargo pocket, um, you know, not the weapon, not, not the body armor, but the calendar that I wrote down, checking off every month, getting closer to home
2: yeah. on the
3: back of my notebook, the frequencies we use for medevac, things like that.
2: Yeah. And yeah. those, those, those little things, um, I, I think, you know, eventually, you know, if and when something like the, that goes in a museum, Uh, Yeah, those things are approachable to people because, you know, every guy has a wallet and everyone has a calendar on their wall. But those items take on an increased significance when you place them in a certain historical context. Um, And and so I I think you're you're spot on in in your description of that sort of stuff.
1: Before we let you go, Jared, I have one more question about the book, Hang Tough. Um, When it came to, you know, sitting down, because obviously someone presented you the idea, hey, I have access to this stuff. I kind of want to do a book on it and you're and you said earlier that you use the letters between him and his pen pal to kind of lay the timeline or the the storyline to what would become your book but obviously before you knew that's how you're going to approach it you had to sit down and look at the context and content in which you have access to how long did it take for that storyline to kind of reveal itself to you to where you and Eric said okay This is the way we're going to go with this project. Was it an aha moment? Was it early on? Did it take a little while to get there? How does someone look at a boxes, even something as well organized as the boxes that you would get from a Dick Winters, but still you're not as familiar with it as he is. You don't have the years of looking through it. And so it's basically a box of papers. How long does it take you to even look into that and say, okay, here's the direction in which we're going?
2: Um, It did not take long at all. Um, because you know winters had these um all in chronological order, you know page by page, <laughs> very methodical um you know, and he made copies for his family members and and whatnot um and you know it, it it took only you know browsing through a few pages to determine that we wanted to show these in an unfiltered way, um because you know there've been there's a biography about him. There's a memoir about him. Um, Cole Kinsey wrote a, a really great book called Conversations with Major Dick Winters. And those are all fantastic books and they were all really helpful to us in, in putting this narrative together. Um, but we, we, we didn't want to paraphrase his words. We didn't want to put it into a kind of a traditional narrative format. We wanted to put people in the moment And we didn't want to dilute any of his words um, that would take that sense of immediacy away. Um, And so it it took not long at all um, to figure out how we were going to piece this all together. Um, And, you know, it's, it's my hope that people gain new perspective from Dick Winters as a result of this book. And they come to appreciate him even more, just as I have throughout this process.
1: And when that revealed itself to you, did that take some pressure off you? Because as you said earlier, like, what what could I possibly talk about on this topic that hasn't been driven over so many times? Where, what, did that say, okay, whew, that's out of the way, now I'm excited, let's go down this road? I mean, that's a gift. I mean, just having that when it comes to this subject matter, to have access to something that hasn't, like you said, she was never even referred to in any of the previous contexts of the storyline, and so that in itself is a gift when you're trying to publish a book, and as we often do in living history and and reenacting, is try to present something in a new way that has been done oodles of times before, so that people who've already read up on this, this information or on this history, it's it's new and exciting for them too.
2: Yeah, and I think um, along those lines one one of the the more powerful components of the book for me was the ability to balance the battlefront and the home front a little bit more than what any other band of brothers books did for the most part. Um because you know dick is of course in the eto but he's he's writing to a woman who was st- stationed at a, a naval radar station yeah. on the potomac river um in maryland um and you know she's still going to movies and you know sunbathing on top of the barracks roof and you know all, all sorts of stuff like that and so in a lot of these conversations it's my hope that readers will be able to have their, their feet on both sides of the Atlantic, so to speak. Um, th- that you'll get a, a sense of what's going on in Europe. Um, and you'll also have perspective of how those in Europe tried to stay in touch with those back home. And uh, really, I think you know, what one of the, the prime themes of the book is, is that it's a celebration of the lost art of letter writing. And I, I think, um, unfortunately, in a lot of our more uh, recent wars, because, you know, since we have these wonderful things like, like Zoom and Skype and Facebook available, um, a lot of service members forego writing letters. And that's going to be a major problem for historians of the future as mm-hmm. they try to piece together what was the combat experience like for somebody who was in Afghanistan or Iraq it's going to be a lot harder than what it was for the civil war or world war Two, unfortunately so not, that's an uh, interesting food for thought to think of from a historiographical perspective
1: not only the writings but the photographs imagine how few photos we would have of easy company if they were all on a digital camera that got wet yeah. in the battlefield somewhere or the flash drive got too close to a magnet or got soaked yeah um I'm sure Jeff can say there's probably a lot of uh, photos that he took in his time on early old school, you know, what, eight megapixel cameras back in the day that are no longer with us because the hard drive failed on a laptop five years ago and things like that. So there's probably a lot of memories that are gone.
3: I have everything. I have everything. This was before I, I may mean, maybe social media existed. I was overseas in 04 going into early 05. Uh, we had one satellite phone for the entire troop, which we shared like once a week, which was ridiculous because there was about a nine-second <laughs> delay. So you say something, and you gotta wait because <laughs> they gotta answer that question first before you start talking again.
1: It's like talking uh, on Skype. But I
3: have hundreds, hundreds of letters. I married my high school sweetheart, so we still have every letter correspondence and every picture I took. I took on a disposable camera,
1: like the little yellow ones, it,
3: like the old yellow ones, right? But I mailed the cameras home. Nice. Then when I got back home, I developed all the films. So I have everything. But I'll That's tell cool. you, a few short years after me, everything was different.
1: Right. Everything
3: was, was, was this. And it's lost. Everybody's it just... lost. I'm so thankful that I know what it's like to smell a letter from my girl.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. His name <laughs> is Jerry. The
2: generation, Jeff.
1: Yeah, I am. <laughs> his name is Jared Frederick. He's been on the show multiple times. Go on to Amazon and get his new book, Hang Tough, the World War II Letters, an artifact of Major Dick Winners," along with him and his co-writer, Eric Doerr. Jared, thank you so much. Where can people find you on social media? You want them to go to Facebook, Instagram, TikTok? Where, where's your new angle, sir?
2: I keep it pretty simple. I'm just on Facebook. That's about all I have time for. And uh, you can follow me at historianjaredfrederick
1: thank you so much sir i'm gonna let you go jeff you hang out um we actually have a letter in the mailbag so jeff you hang out jared we're gonna let you go and we will uh hopefully talk to you again and when you have a next project i know you probably have something you're already working on aren't you you don't have to say it but you I got do. you got see you got to have uh, those irons in the fire when yeah. that book comes out um even if it's not world war ii related reach out to me and i'll happily have you back on once again sir thank Thanks, you jared you
2: guys. it was a lot of fun
1: thank you bye-bye so, Jeff, we have a letter for the mailbag. And I, mail wanted to, I wanted to go over that real quick. Um, and this is an interesting one. It says, hello, WTSP podcast. I am a USGI reenactor residing in Florida. And I've always been surprised at the lack of Pacific Theater of Operation-themed events in your state. Would you think there would be more PTO events given that our hot and humid climates and also given the presence of more tropical fauna in central and southern Florida particularly? A benefit to having a PTO themed event would be an uh, extension of the reenacting season in Florida based reenactors who often have to wait for winter months to don their wool uniforms. Are there any discussions among reenactor units for the event organizers regarding the expansion of the PTO CBI events in the near future? Thanks Britain. And I reply back to Britain and I'm sure he'll hear this episode. Um, When I got into this, we actually had a group of uh, PTO reenactors here in Florida. We, Put on one or two tactical events, and then uh, we'd all go up to Alabama for the Fort Morgan different events. And I, I replied to Britain about that. But uh, since then, um, I'd say since year two of the Fort Morgan event, our little group down here in Florida fell apart. I am pretty much the remainder, and there's one or two guys who have PTO uniforms. Um, but w- with the exception of the tactical events, we have. The closest uh thing, and be honest with you, once the Fort Morgan events started happening, the authenticity and the amount of people, and we've talked about it and we've had Galen on here before um it's one of the only events you'll go to where once, since it's out of fort with the the berms around the fort, it's one of the few events you'll go to where you actually don't see cars because they're parked out of the way when you wake up in the morning, you're surrounded by nothing but pyramid tents and pup tents and everybody in the exact same uniform with down to the detail of you're not wearing um the wrong canteen cover because it hadn't been issued yet the uniform code is that tight and it and so and it was always funny because people complain well all right, now i gotta go buy a new piss cutter because i i don't have a khaki i only have a green one it's like that's twenty dollars twenty dollars is getting in your way of getting this done but britain thank you so much um as i said to you in your email Just uh, go on Facebook and look for the Fort Morgan Group, and that would be your closest event and most authentic. And it's kind of, you know, it makes more sense to go to a semi-established event where you have 150 reenactors instead of having five guys trying to get a new event off the ground down here. But I do agree with you. It is my first love, the PTO events. And if you guys want to email us, send us an email to mailcall at wtspworldwar2.com or send us an email to info at d-410.com. And, Jeff, we are down to another nine minutes on the countdown of the Zuma meeting. Real quick, um, at the beginning of the show, we played Eisenhower's um, letter to the infantry and airborne soldiers before they embarked on the Greatest Crusades. Um, It was the 77th anniversary of d-day over the weekend um did you have anything going on out, out at your museum or did you and a family do anything of interest uh world war ii themed over the weekend or did you finally just get to relax because now your schedule is a little more free
3: <laughs> well it was it was pretty exciting for me from a personal perspective because 3 june is my birthday and i had a my jarhead brother and sister surprise me fly down from jersey and they stayed for the weekend
1: nice. so happy late birthday
3: yeah, appreciate it. So, yeah, they surprised the surpriser. I pride myself on when I go back to see family, I'm surprising somebody. Oh, I have yeah? never been surprised. So it was really cool. So uh, really neat that they did that. And I actually introduced my brother, who had never seen Band of Brothers. What? Uh, I, I I know. I know. So uh, because he had to leave about 05 on Sunday morning, the morning of D-Day, I said, "Dude," it had to be down in Austin, which is about an hour, hour and a half if you hit traffic. So I said, "Dude, you, you got to be out at five, you know, to get to the airport. We're not sleeping tonight, so let's watch." Big I Brothers. got twelve <laughs>
1: episodes, eleven episodes of Glory for you, my friend.
3: <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't start until about midnight, Duh. so we got the first four episodes in, and that was about it. But he's hooked. Um, he actually, uh, right in front of me, he's on Amazon. Uh, he just, he bought, um, beyond band of brothers about Dick Winters, mm-hmm. you know, or, or his book. I, I told him, I said, man, that, that's, that's an incredible book. It's one of my favorites. Got it, my uh, I, I did promise him one of our t-shirts. So I'm going to have to go online here pretty quick and get him one of our, what's this kind of t-shirts, uh, for him. Uh, he's, he's proud of himself. He's, uh, he's down to a two X in t-shirt nice. size. So he's, he's come a long way. He lost like a hundred pounds since the last time I saw him. So that's fantastic. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah,
1: And if you yeah. guys want a WTSP World War II t-shirt, head over to com. and if you're on a smartphone, you may have to scroll down to the bottom to find the banner of the t-shirt or I think you, there should be a merch link on there. You can click on that merch link. And if you guys haven't done so, please head over to the com and sign up for Patreon. It'll also be at the bottom of the page if you're on a mobile device. If you're on a computer, it should be a link on the right-hand side. Um, it's a dollar a month and that'll give you access to exclusive content. And um, anytime we do beta demos, like uh, with stickers that we're trying to come up with, or hats, um, I basically beta test them on our OG5 members. Um, I'll send you a message to Patreon and say, hey, I got some new stickers I'm rolling out. Uh, I want to beta test them, what's your address, and I'll send you free stickers. And even if they're not beta tested, if you want to, what's the Scuttlebutt podcast sticker, a Digital 410 sticker, an OG5 sticker, I'll just say, hey, uh, send me a self-addressed envelope with a stamp on it. The bigger the envelope, the bigger free sticker you get, and we'll send them out your way. So if you guys want to help support the podcast and the YouTube channel, that's the best way to do it. Head over to YouTube and subscribe. We're getting close to 500. And we'll have to do something next June because my birthday is June 29th. So we have a June birthday. Um, We have six minutes real quick. Last episode, you're talking about the um, premiere or the uh, playing of you had an event coming up with having to do with walking point. Did that take place or is that still coming up? And how did that go?
3: Yeah, that was great. So that happened. Uh, I guess it was the twenty second of May, I want to say, and that was the uh, the GI Film Festival out of San Diego. GI Film Fest. Um, it's all military related films, short films, uh, and Walking Point was featured. And and for Walking Point it was kind of full circle for for them because it the the pilot, I guess uh, that that RJ and the team had put together had uh, been on the GI Film Fest in twenty fifteen. So now it became a really cool nice. short film and now again got selected to be part of the GI film fest. So RJ and I, director RJ myself got to be part of the Q and a panel. So immediately after everybody was, cause of course it was a virtual film, fest, everybody by screening the movies and once the screening was done, there was about seven or eight of us from some of the different films that were featured. And we got to kind of answer some questions from a moderator about what it was like, uh, you know, filming our particular, Uh, film and and the accuracy component things like that for military so that was really super cool i was really really proud to be a part of that and then for anybody else in my area uh out at the island lakes air museum on the 19th of june we're having our very first inaugural wine and wings event we're going to have live military uh, weapon demonstrations uh we're going to have a wine vendor out there for all the ladies that want to sit around and not care about airplanes we got wine for you We're going to have our SNJ giving rides. We're raffling off a bunch of stuff. So it's just another way to get that museum uh, out there, relevant. We're taking in some really cool new artifacts. I'm hoping we'll be on display by the end of the year. Uh, So I'll definitely be sending you some stuff on on Instagram about that. And Don, I'll be tagging you in it uh, throughout the event. It's kind of an evening event, 5 to 9, as it's a little bit cooler out. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have a lot of the – hopefully a lot of the – kind of the big wigs of the city of Burnett there to kind of come see what this museum is doing and not just an annual air show once a year, we're going to be doing four public programs and this is going to be the first of them. So really excited about that here in the next uh, two weeks.
1: Fantastic. I want to thank everybody for hanging out for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. And if you download this from our website or watch on YouTube, you can download this podcast wherever you find podcasts are found. That would be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, etc. Anywhere you can find podcasts. Thank you guys so much for uh, Jeff Copsetta and Jared Frederick. My name is Don Abernathy, and we will talk to you all soon.
2: This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>